0: Chapter 17 of the Home Education Series, Volume 2 Parents and Children. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Abby J. The Home Education Series, Volume 2 Parents and Children by Charlotte Mason. Chapter 17 Sensations and Feelings. Sensations Educable by Parents Common Sense Children whose parents have little theoretic knowledge of the values of the various foodstuffs are often thoroughly nourished. Their parents rely on what they call common sense, and the result is, on the whole, better than if scientific consideration were given to the family dietary. But this common sense has usually scientific opinion for its basis though the fact may be forgotten, and when scientific opinion has become the groundwork of habit, it is of more value, and works in a more simple way, than while it is still in the stage of experiment. In the same way, it is a good thing to have such an acquaintance with the functions of human nature that we act on our knowledge unconsciously, and do not even know that we possess it. But if we have no such floating capital of cognizance, We must study the subject even if we have to make experiments most people suppose that the sensations feelings and emotions of a child are matters that take care of themselves indeed we are apt to use the three terms indiscriminately without attaching very clear ideas to them but they cover collectively a very important educational field and though common sense that is to say judgments formed upon inherited knowledge, often helps us to act wisely without knowing why, we shall probably act more wisely if we act reasonably. Origin of Sensations Let us consider first the subject of sensations. We speak of sensations of cold and sensations of heat and sensations of pain, and we are quite right. We also speak of sensations of fear and sensations of pleasure, and we are commonly wrong. The sensations have their origin in impressions received by the several organs of sense— eye, tongue, nostrils, ear, and the surface of the external skin— and are conveyed by the sensory nerves, some to the spinal cord, and some to the lower region of the brain. Many sensations we know nothing about, when we become aware of our sensations— It is because communications are sent by nerve fibers acting as telegraph wires from the sensorium to the thinking brain and this happens when we give our attention to any one of the multitudinous messages carried by the sensory nerves the physiology of the senses is too complicated a subject to touch upon here but it is deeply interesting and perhaps no better introduction exists in Professor Clifford's little book, Seeing and Thinking, Macmillan. Now, the senses are the five gateways of knowledge, to quote the title of a little book which many of us have used in early days, and an intelligent person should be aware of and capable of forming judgments upon the sensations he receives. Sensations should be treated as of objective interest. We all recognize that the training of the senses is an important part of education. One caution is necessary. From the very first, a child's sensations should be treated as matters of objective and not of subjective interest. Marmalade, for example, is interesting, not because it is nice, a fact not to be dwelt upon at all, but because one can discern in it different flavors— and the modifying effect of the oil secreted in the rind of the orange. We shall have occasion to speak more of this subject later, but a useful piece of education is this of causing a child's interest to center in the objects which produce his sensations, and not in himself as the receiver of those sensations. Object Lessons in Disfavor The purpose of so-called object lessons is to assist a child, by careful examination of a given object, to find out all he can about it through the use of his several senses. General information about the object is thrown in, and lodges only because the child's senses have been exercised and his interests aroused. Object lessons are a little in disfavor just now, for two reasons. In the first place, miserable fragments are presented to the children which have little of the character of the object in situ, and are apt to convey inadequate, if not wrong, ideas. In the next place, object lessons are commonly used as a means to introduce children to hard words, such as opaque and translucent, which never become part of their living thought until they pick them up for themselves incidentally as they have need of them. But the abuse of this kind of teaching should not cause us to overlook its use. No child can grow up without daily object teaching, whether casual or of set purpose. And the more thorough this is, the more intelligent and observant will he become. It is singular how few people are capable of developing an intelligent curiosity about the most attractive objects, except as their interest is stimulated from without. A BABY'S OBJECT LESSON The baby is a wonderful teacher in this matter of object lessons. To be sure, his single pupil is his own small self, but his progress is amazing. At first, he does not see any difference between a picture of a cow and the living animal. Big and little, far and near, hard and soft, hot and cold, are all alike to him. He wishes to hold the moon in his pinafore, to sit on the pond, to poke his finger into the candle, not because he is a foolish little person, but because he is profoundly ignorant of the nature of the contents of this unintelligible world. But how he works. He bangs his spoon to try if it produces sound. He sucks it to try its flavor. He fumbles it all over and no doubt finds out whether it is hard or soft, hot or cold, rough or smooth. He gazes at it with the long gaze of infancy, so that he may learn the look of it. It is an old friend and an object of desire when he sees it again, for he has found out that there is much joy in a spoon. This goes on with great diligence for a couple of years, at the end of which time Baby has acquired enough knowledge of the world to conduct himself in a very dignified and rational way. Nature's Teaching This is what happens under nature's teaching, and for the first five or six years of his life, everything, especially everything in action, is an object of intelligent curiosity to the child. The street or the field is a panorama of delight. The shepherd's dog, the baker's cart, the man with the barrow, are full of vivid interest. He has a thousand questions to ask. He wants to know about everything. He has, in fact, an inordinate appetite for knowledge. We soon cure all that. We occupy him with books instead of things. We evoke other desires in place of the desire to know. And we succeed in bringing up the unobservant man, and more unobservant woman, who discerns no difference between an elm, a poplar, and a lime-tree, and misses very much of the joy of living. By the way— Why is it that the baby does not exercise with purpose his organ of smell? He screws up a funny little nose when he is taught to sniff at a flower, but this is a mere trick. He does not naturally make experiments as to whether things are odorous, while each of his other senses affords him keen joy. No doubt the little nose is, involuntarily, very active, but can his inertness in this matter be a hereditary failing? It may be that we all allow ourselves to go about with obtuse nostrils. If so, this is a matter for the attention of mothers, who should bring up their children not only to receive, which is involuntary and vague, but to perceive odors from the first. Education of the Senses Two points call for our attention in the education of the senses— we must assist the child to educate himself on nature's lines, and we must take care not to supplant and crowd out nature and her methods with that which we call education. Object lessons should be incidental, and this is where the family enjoys so great an advantage over the school. It is almost impossible that the school should give any but set lessons, but this sort of teaching in the family falls in with the occurrence of the object. The child who finds that wonderful and beautiful object, a paper wasp's nest, attached to a larch twig, has his object lesson on the spot, from father or mother. The gray color, the round symmetrical shape, the sort of cup and ball arrangement, the papery texture, the comparative size, the comparative smoothness, the odor, or lack of odor, the extreme lightness, the fact that it is not cold to the touch, These, and fifty other particulars, the child finds out unaided, or with no more than a word, here and there to direct his observation. One does not find a wasp's nest every day, but much can be got out of every common object, and the commoner the better, which falls naturally under the child's observation, a piece of bread, a lump of coal, a sponge. ADVANTAGES OF HOME TEACHING In the first place, it is unnecessary in the family to give an exhaustive examination to every object. One quality might be discussed in this, another quality in that. We eat our bread and milk and notice that bread is absorbent, and we overhaul our experience to discover other things which we know to be absorbent also, and we do what we can to compare these things as to whether they are less absorbent or more absorbent than bread this is exceedingly important. The unobservant person states that an object is light, and considers that he has stated an ultimate fact. The observant person makes the same statement, but has in his mind a relative scale, and his judgment is of the more value because he compares, silently, with a series of substances to which this is relatively light. POSITIVE and comparative terms it is important that children should learn to recognize that high low sweet bitter long short agreeable etc etc are comparative terms while square round black white are positive terms the application of which is not affected by comparison with other objects indiscriminate use of epithets. Care in this matter makes for higher moral, as well as intellectual development. Half the dissensions in the world arise from an indiscriminate use of epithets. Would you say your bread at dinner was light or heavy? The child would probably answer, rather light. Yes, we can only say that a thing is light by comparing it with others, What is bread-light compared with? A stone, a piece of coal, of cheese, of butter of the same size. But it is heavy compared with a piece of sponge cake, a piece of sponge, of cork, of pumice, and so on. What do you think it weighs? An ounce, an ounce and a half? We'll try after dinner. You had better have another piece and save it and the weighing after dinner is a delightful operation. The power of judging of weight is worth cultivating. We heard the other day of a gentleman who was required at a bazaar to guess the weight of a monster cake. He poised it and said it weighed 18 pounds 14 ounces, and it did exactly. Cateris paribus, one has a greater respect for the man who made this accurate judgment than for the vague person who suggested that the cake might weigh ten pounds. Judgment as to weight Letters, book parcels, an apple, an orange, a vegetable marrow, fifty things in the course of the day give opportunities for this kind of object teaching, i.e., the practice of forming judgments as to the relative and absolute weight of objects by the irresistance, that is, their opposition to our muscular force, perceived by our sense of touch. By degrees, the children are trained to observe that the relative weights of objects depend on their relative density and are introduced to the fact that we have a standard of weight. Judgment as to size In the same way, children should be taught to measure objects by the eye. How high is that candlestick? How long and broad that picture frame? And so on. Verifying their statements. What is the circumference of that bowl? Of the clock face? Of that flower bed? How tall is so and so? And so and so? How many hands high are the horses of their acquaintance? Divide a slip of wood, a sheet of paper into halves, thirds, quarters by the eye. Lay a walking stick at right angles with another. Detect when a picture, curtain, etc., hangs out of the perpendicular. THIS SORT OF PRACTICE WILL SECURE FOR CHILDREN WHAT IS CALLED A CORRECT OR TRUE EYE. DISCRIMINATION OF SOUNDS A QUICK AND TRUE EAR IS ANOTHER POSSESSION THAT DOES NOT COME BY NATURE. OR ANYWAY, IF IT DOES, IT IS TOO OFTEN LOST. HOW MANY SOUNDS CAN YOU DISTINGUISH IN A SUDDEN SILENCE OUT OF DOORS? LET THESE BE NAMED IN ORDER FROM THE LESS TO THE MORE ACUTE. Let the notes of the birds be distinguished, both call notes and song notes, the four or five distinct sounds to be heard in the flow of a brook. Cultivate accuracy in distinguishing footfalls and voices, in discerning with their eyes shut the direction from which a sound proceeds, in which footsteps are moving. Distinguish passing vehicles by their sounds, as lorry, broom, dog-cart. Music is, no doubt, the means par excellence for this kind of ear culture. Mrs. Kerwin's child pianist puts carefully graduated work of this kind into the hands of parents, and if a child never become a performer, to have acquired a cultivated and correct ear is no small part of a musical education. Discrimination of Odors we do not attach enough importance to the discrimination of odours, whether as a safeguard to health, or as a source of pleasure. Half the people one knows have nostrils which register no difference between the atmosphere of a large and so-called airy room, whose windows are never opened, and that of a room in which a through current of air is arranged for at frequent intervals. And yet health depends largely on delicate perception as regards the purity of the atmosphere. The odors which result in diphtheria or typhoid are perceptible, however slight, and a nose trained to detect the faintest malodorous particles in food, clothing, or dwelling is to the possessor a safeguard from disease. Then odors enter more readily than other sense perceptions into those sensations sweet, felt in the blood. And felt along the heart, which adds so much to the sum of our happiness, because they unite themselves readily with our purely incorporeal joys by links of association. I never smell woodruff without being reminded is the sort of thing we hear and say continually, but we do not trouble ourselves to realize that we owe a double joy to the odour of the woodruff, or it may be, alas, a reflected sorrow. The joy of the pleasant influences about us when we pluck the flower, and the possibly more personal joy of that other time with which we associate it. Every new odor perceived is a source, if not of warning, of recurrent satisfaction or interest. We are acquainted with too few of the odors which the springtime offers. Only this spring, the present writer learned two peculiarly delightful odours quite new to her, that of young larch twigs, which have much the kind and degree of fragrance as the flower of the syringa, and the pleasant musky aroma of a box hedge. Children should be trained to shut their eyes, for example, when they come into the drawing-room, and discover by their nostrils what odorous flowers are present, should discriminate the garden odours let loose by a shower of rain. Houses and rooms are full of perfumes, the shelves are crowded with perfumes. I breathe the fragrance myself, and know it, and like it. The atmosphere is not a perfume, it has no taste of the distillation, it is odorless. It is for my mouth forever, I am in love with it. The sniff of green leaves, and dry leaves, and of the shore, and dark-colored sea-rocks, and of hay in the barn. THE AMERICAN POET HAS, PERHAPS, DONE MORE THAN ANY OTHER TO EXPRESS THE PLEASURE TO BE FOUND IN ODORS. THIS IS ONE DIRECTION IN WHICH MUCH REMAINS TO BE DONE. WE HAVE NOT YET ARRIVED EVEN AT A SCALE OF ODORS, AS OF SOUND AND OF COLOR. DISCRIMINATION OF FLAVOR FLAVOR, AGAIN, OFFERS A WIDE RANGE FOR DELICATE DISCRIMINATION. At first sight, it would appear difficult to cultivate the sense of flavor without making a child more or less of a gourmand, but the fact is that the strong flavors which titillate the palate destroy the power of perception. The young child who lives upon milk foods has, probably, more pleasure in flavor than the diner-out who is familiar with the confections of a cordon bleu. At the same time, one would prefer to make flavor a source of interest, rather than of sensuous pleasure to children. It is better that they should try to discern a flavor with their eyes shut, than that they should be allowed to think or say that things are nice or nasty. This sort of fastidiousness should be cried down. It is not well to make a child eat what he does not like, as that would only make him dislike that particular dish always but to let him feel that he shows a want of self-control and manliness when he expresses distaste for wholesome food is likely to have a lasting effect. Sensory Gymnastics We have barely touched on the sorts of object lessons, appealing now to one sense and now to another, which should come incidentally every day in the family. We are apt to regard an American Indian as a quite uneducated person. He is, on the contrary, highly educated, in so far as that he is able to discriminate sensory impressions, and to take action upon these, in a way which is bewildering to the book-learned European. It would be well for parents to educate a child, for the first half-dozen years of his life, at any rate, on Red Indian lines. Besides the few points we have mentioned, he should be able to discriminate colours and shades of colour relative degrees of heat in woollen wood iron marble ice should learn the use of the thermometer should discriminate objects according to their degrees of hardness should have a cultivated eye and touch for texture should in fact be able to get as much information about an object from a few minutes study as to its form colour texture size weight, qualities, parts, characteristics, as he could learn out of many pages of a printed book. We approach the subject by the avenue of the child's senses rather than by that of the objects to be studied, because just now we have in view the occasional test exercises, the purpose of which is to give thorough culture to the several senses. An acquaintance with nature and natural objects is another theme, and is to be approached in a slightly different way. A boy who is observing a beetle does not consciously apply his several senses to the beetle, but lets the beetle take the initiative, which the boy reverently follows. But the boy who is in the habit of doing sensory daily gymnastics will learn a great deal more about the beetle than he who is not so trained. Sensory Games Definite object lessons differ from these incidental exercises in that an object is in a manner exhausted by each of the senses in turn, and every atom of information it will yield got out of it. A good plan is to make this sort of lesson a game. Pass your object round, a piece of bread for example, and let each child tell some fact that he discovers by touch, another round by smell, again by taste, and again by sight. Children are most ingenious in this kind of game, and it affords opportunities to give them new words, as friable, elastic, when they really ask to be helped to express in a word some discovery they have made. Children learn in this way to think with exactitude, to distinguish between friable and brittle, and any common information that is offered to them in the course of these exercises becomes a possession for A good game in the nature of an object lesson, suitable for a birthday party, is to have a hundred objects arranged on a table, unknown to the children. Then lead the little party into the room. Allow them three minutes to walk round the table. Afterwards, when they have left the room, let them write or tell in a corner the names of all the objects they recollect. Some children will easily get fifty or sixty. No doubt the best and happiest exercise of the senses springs out of a loving familiarity with the world of nature, but the sorts of gymnastics we have indicated render the perceptions more acute, and are greatly enjoyed by children. That the sensations should not be permitted to minister unduly to the subjective consciousness of the child is the great point to be borne in mind. End of chapter 17